Welcome to Afternoon Light, the podcast of the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Georgina Downer and I'm the host of Afternoon Light and the CEO of the Robert Menzies Institute. The Institute is a prime ministerial library and museum devoted to upholding the legacy and vision of Sir Robert Menzies, Australia's longest serving Prime Minister. On Afternoon Light, we explore contemporary issues relevant to Sir Robert's life and legacy with leading thinkers from around the world. Thank you for joining us today. Hello, and on today's episode of Afternoon Light, I'm talking to Troy Bramston, who is a senior writer and columnist with the Australian newspaper and the author of 11 books, including Bob Hawke, Demons and Destiny, and Robert Menzies, The Art of Politics. Welcome to Afternoon Light, Troy. Hello, Georgina. Great to be here. It's it's wonderful to have you over from Sydney and um, very much looking forward to your event with us tonight too. I was just saying, what is your next book you've got planned? You've written this absolutely magnificent book on Bob Hawke and obviously the book on Robert Menzies and one on Paul Keating. You've got to have something in the works. Look, I'm going to have a, a little bit of a break. Really? Um, yeah, look, I've worked, I've done a lot of books in a short period of time. Yeah. I'm very interested in prime ministerial biography and political leadership, so that'll be a continuing theme, and I just have to settle on a, a new prime minister to delve mm. into their lives. So, Is it, is it Howard? It might be Howard. I feel like it might be Howard It could now. be Howard. I'm probably going to have to keep going back in time, I think, because uh, I'm not sure that our current crop of prime ministers are as interesting or as exciting as Robert Menzies, Bob Hawke or Paul Keating. <laughs> well, you know, you might say that. I couldn't possibly comment, but we here at the Robert Menzies Institute are fascinated in Robert Menzies, of course, and, and Bob Hawke as his counterpart of as longest-serving Prime Minister for his side of politics for the Australian Labor Party. As I was reading your book, I was reflecting, Troy, on how similar the upbringings of Menzies and Hawke were. And actually, when I did a podcast uh, last year with Gideon Haig on his biography of Doc Evatt, it was the same. The the humble origins, uh, scholarship boy, that sort of sense of destiny. And of course, for Hawke and Menzies, their fathers were, were religious leaders. Is it something about that upbringing that that leads them to that political success can you can you talk through your, your I think thoughts it's a, on that I think it's a fascinating parallel you know Bob Hawke of course is born in Bordertown in South Australia in 1929 Robert Menzies of course um, is born in Japarit in 1894 they're both small country towns you know they're not far from each other not either, far from well in fact I, I did a trip to both of them on the same trip from Sydney to oh, the same from trip. Sydney to Adelaide oh. yeah yeah I took the took my wife and my kids and as I often joke, uh, you know, I told them this would be a great family holiday to see where two prime ministers were born and where they lived. And it, it is incredible, really, that they're so isolated. They lived an isolated existence, but not a lonely existence. You know, they had vibrant family and community lives. Both families are involved in public service uh, of some kind. Of course, Robert Menzies' father was a lay preacher. Bob Hawke's father was a full-time clergyman. So they had that upbringing. But I think there is that sense of you know, open skies, big ambitions, dreaming about what might be outside of these small cities, a commitment to public service. 
service, a loving family life. And so there we see many, many parallels there. And it's pretty unique. You know, I think that Robert Menzies has often been wrongly characterised as part of the so-called born-to-rule, you know, Liberal Party tradition. And he's not. He was very middle class, you know, born in the back of the family's general store. And Bob Hawke was the, was, was the same. I mean, he, he did not have a wealthy uh, upbringing, a very modest um, and simple existence. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. And, and both started off life in the sort of Methodist uh, tradition too. I mean, obviously Menzies goes on to become a, a Presbyterian, but there wasn't a Presbyterian church in Japarat where he was born in Western Victoria. So his father uh, joins the, the local Wesleyan community. And Bob Hawke's father was from Cornwall, wasn't he? And they were Methodists originally. And that kind of changed as time went on. So it's it's interesting, those kind of Methodist values too, that come through with, with both of them. Yeah, I mean, Bob Hawke's father became a congregational minister and Bob Hawke was actually very deeply religious um, when he grew up, more so than, say, Robert Menzies, for example. I mean, religion was important in both of their lives and they had a an understanding and a tolerance and a respect for other faiths. There's no hint of sectarianism or, or religious prejudice in, in any of their upbringings or their, their personal makeups. Bob Hawke uh, did drift away from organised religion, but I was very surprised to see how religious he was, particularly as a university student at the University of uh, Western Australia. He was a leader in the student Christian movement and he went to India in 1952 for a Christian student conference. And on that trip, as he witnessed widespread poverty, he lost the faith. And so it didn't happen straight away, but his faith was was shattered because of the, the poor conditions that so many Indian people were living in and he couldn't reconcile it. And so he, I was able to get access to a diary that he kept when I was writing the biography where he, he charts his, his uh, um, lack of faith, he's losing the faith in religion. Um, and then eventually he, he becomes an agnostic. Um, he, he's not an atheist, as some people thought he was. He's an, actually an ag- agnostic um, and still maintain that strong uh, sense of, I guess, a Christian principle in how he lived his life. And it's interesting, Troy, I mean, both, both Menzies and Hawke were presidents of their universities' respective Christian unions, and as you say, neither were particularly religious as politicians. I mean, Hawke agnostic, Menzies, Menzies definitely professed to have a faith, but he, he certainly didn't wear it on his sleeve in a, in a spiritual sense. It was more a, a cultural part of his life that links back to Scotland and, and all that the Presbyterian church stood for. But Hawke's father, Clem has written some memoirs that you've referred to in your in your book and it's interesting even though Bob Hawke drifts away from organized religion his, and his parents are obviously deeply religious people there's no ill will is there no, look, he, his father actually understood what had happened in India and how his son was had his faith shaken, and their response couldn't be couldn't be more Christian in a sense that they they understood that he was going through this crisis and he needed time to to work it out. Of course, he broke his mother's heart when he started drinking alcohol at university. It wasn't until the third year while studying law that he actually started drinking. Of course, his mother had signed him up to the Christian Youth Temperance oh. Movement, um, and she was a big leader in that you know she believed that alcohol was the devil's work on earth yeah and so it it uh, broke her heart when he started
started drinking and Clem started drinking as well. No. Um, yeah, that's right, because oh. he, he served as a chaplain in the Second World War and uh, after that he came back and he, he had taken a, a liking to the odd beer as well. So uh, so poor Ellie Hawke, you know, had to deal with her, her loving uh, husband and son both taking to, to the drink. But it's an interesting aspect of their lives and with these memoirs that Clem Hawke had, had written but had never been published before, I found them literally at the bottom of a box one day um, and the sort of sense of the Bob Hawke belief in destiny comes yeah. from the opening pages of this memoir. You know, literally, as he comes blinking into the morning light, the family legend is that the doctor talked, said to the nurse, you know, this boy is special. And, and of course, Clem and Ellie believe that immediately. Um, and so he was led to believe that his life was destined for great things. Now, when I pushed Bob on this question, even in the last interview that he ever gave, um, and of course, the last one that I did with him, he's, he downplayed notions of a kind of a divine intervention, but he did feel that there was some kind of guidance in his life, you know, pushing him in the right direction. So he had that from, from his earliest uh, earliest moments on earth. It's it's so interesting, that, that sense that this was preordained he, and his parents throughout his childhood went that they were basically saying you're destined for greatness to lead this country. And the same, the same with Menzies. You think about how that, that funny... Um, anecdote you you tell in your in your biography of Menzies of the phrenologist <laughs> that sort of sense that he was going on to you know to be a barrister because a phrenologist had told him at what was at the age of eight or something yeah he'd come this travelling phrenologist who who you know <laughs> said he could he could divine future lives by massaging the skull and looking for the bumps and he proclaimed that young Robert Menzies would be a a public speaker and a debater um, and a lawyer. And um, and so that was that was pretty pretty interesting, you know. Um, but of course, the family couldn't send him to university, so he had to get a scholarship. And so so that that moment had a big in- impact on his life as well. Being told that one day you're going to do something, and then essentially, you know, charting a course to achieve it. And, and also the fact that his parents, Kate and James Menzies, kept him home uh, when his two older brothers were off to World War. One to serve um, in you know, military operations. That that sense that well, Bob's the Bob Menzies, but you're you're the smart one. You're the one who's likely to be able to look after us if you know, Frank and Les don't come back. And um, we need one of our three boys to to stay home. And you you look like you have the best prospects. You're you're going to be the the, the successful one of the family. So they knew. Yeah, they they knew, and I think that um, you know people who are familiar with my Menzies biography, they would know that I got, was able to get access to a series of interviews that he had given Francis McNichol for the official biography, which was never actually written. And in these interviews, he talked about that that, that event where he had two old older brothers who were sent abroad in World War One, and the family said, "You have to stay here to look after the family." His father was not well. Uh, his sister uh, Belle Green um, had eloped and got married. Um, and of course, so this was a this was a big a traumatic event for the family. And Menzies said in these interviews um, that 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 was the moment that he decided that he would go into politics because he wanted to serve. He couldn't serve in World War One. He was attacked often publicly for not serving, unfairly, of course. Um, but he felt he had to justify his existence in some other way. That's how he put it. And he was looking for another form of public service, and he settled on politics. And Troy, both 
Hawk and Menzies had family members involved in politics. Menzies' father, of course, was a, a state MP and, and his uncle a federal MP and then Bob Hawke's uncle was Premier of, of Western Australia. I mean, how much did having a pol- you know, po- politics in the, in the blood, politics in your life, help drive them into politics and inspire those particular set of values that they both took into political life? Yeah, I think both families are interested in politics. They've got members of the family who have been politicians. Um, But I don't get a sense that either family were particularly pushy about that, that, you know, you have to go into politics one day. I think they let young Robert um, and young Bob just kind of find their own way. But they were obviously exposed to it and they they saw it. Um, A lot of people might remember reading in Robert Menzies' memoir that he was a little bit embarrassed about his father's public speaking, yeah. um, that his father was too emotional um, in his public speaking. And so that kind of turned him off, I guess, that kind of sort of platform oratory. Um, so he styled himself as a different kind of politician, whereas with Bob Hawke, he was very close to his uncle Albert Hawke, who was Labor Party leader and premier. And I remember Bob very vividly telling me that when he was at living in Leaderville in Western Australia, um, that Albert would come over to the house uh, to see his, his mother and father and himself, and they'd they'd play games, they'd play board games, play cards and have dinner, and that was something that happened quite regularly. Um, And I was able to discover a story where Albert Hawke had actually taken uh, his nephew Bob to meet John Curtin um, during World War II. So they're both exposed to politics, meet politicians, understand what it's about, but I think it's not just politics as a profession. It really is about serving their community and wanting to make a contribution. I, I think that's what it is. And Troy, tell me, you obviously spent many, many hours with with Bob Hawke and you've spent many, many hours talking to people about Bob Menzies um, and, and of course, in his papers and listening to the interviews, for example, with um, Francis McNichol. Did you get a sense of why they fell on the side of politics they both did, the, the opposite ends of the spectrum, obviously, but also both very pragmatic in their in their application of their political principles too. Yeah, look, it's actually a really interesting question, Georgina, because both of them took some time to find their path. You know, Robert Menzies um, became a leader at the Melbourne Bar. He saw his career for a long time as being a lawyer, uh, being a barrister. And in fact, he did aspire at one point to becoming the Chief Justice of Victoria. So that was where his, you know, sights were set as a, as a young professional man making his way in Melbourne. Now, Bob Hawke had thought about becoming a, a farmer. He'd thought about becoming a doctor. When he, when he enrolled in university, he was initially thinking about studying medicine. Um, and then he realised that he, he didn't have a uh, he, he didn't cope well with seeing uh, a, a body torn open and blood and organs and things like that. So he decided that medicine wasn't for him. And so he, he studied arts and he studied law. Um, but, you know, even when he won a Rhodes Scholarship and went to Oxford, um, he decided to put his interest in economics and law together and study industrial relations. Um, but even then, he still wasn't thinking, one day I'm going to go into politics. It was a, dis- it was a discussion in the family. He'd thought about it. He considered it. Um, but he wasn't really sure. So both of them, you know, had other careers before politics. And I think this is really important, you know, to understand that Robert Menzies had a very, very successful career as a leading barrister. And of course, Bob Hawke had a very successful career as a trade union leader. And so they went into politics having already well established their professional credentials. Yeah, and and already established their particular interests um, politically in terms of, you know, Bob Hawke obviously had a passion for 
um, industrial relations, for you know workers' rights and conditions, and, and went on to be obviously a, a hugely successful union leader. Uh, and then and then Robert Menzies, you know, that developing especially his years in the wilderness from you know forty forty um, two onwards. He, a political philosophy distinct from any political party at the time, of course, ending up p- forming his own political party, not having a, a political, a natural political home that he thought was going to have any success. Yeah, one of the things I've always admired in politicians, and I've often said, is that is that politics is a learning profession. It's not like a profession that you join and then you simply know it all from the moment you're there and you just practice what you know. You've got to keep learning and you've got to keep changing to be successful in politics. So I was really attracted to Robert Menzies because of that story, someone who, as we all know, had been Prime Minister in World War II, lost the support of his colleagues and had to resign and that was a very, very bitter blow. And then, of course, the Conservative forces uh, fell apart in Australian politics and he had to form a new party. And even as Prime Minister... Minister, you know, he had setbacks. He had close election results. Um, he had, you know, um, some significant um, defeats on legislation and the, the 1951 referendum. But he was able to always consolidate and learn from those mistakes and continue going on and continue being successful. And Bob Hawke, of course, his problem was his personal demons. Yeah. So the drinking and the womanising were big parts of his life, and I write about those a lot in the biography. And he had to understand. Uh, his personal nature. He had to understand how he could deal with those emotions. And a lot of journalists in the 1960s and 1970s thought Hawke would never make it to the Prime Ministership because he had these demons um, that were potentially going to ruin his chances of a successful political career. So he had to deal with that as well. And of course, as Prime Minister, he had many setbacks and uh, that he had to grow and learn and and you know he won the 1987 and 1990 elections after being well behind in the polls but he was again like Menzies able to consolidate and and win again so Troy in your biography of Hawke you touch upon the de- you, I mean your your title is demons and destiny so you're obviously touching upon these demons the the drinking and the and the, the womanizing and you're very frank about the womanising. I mean, I think people all knew about the yard glass at Oxford, and you know, I think people had, you know, they'd say, "Oh, yes, he was, you know, good with the ladies." But there was a lot of euphemisms, and there was a lot of, of course, you know, it was of its era. There was a lot of overlooking the fact that he had actually had a bit of a problem when it came to to sex. Um, tell me about uncovering this, and and really being the first biographer of Hawke to to take this on, really. by the horns and and address it as an issue. Well, that's that's right. And I I had to do that because when I signed up to write a biography of Bob Hawke, it couldn't be a whitewash. I'm not interested in hagiography. I had to do a warts and all portrait. You know, I think Hawke was a very successful and very effective trade union leader and prime minister. And there are a lot of lessons for people to learn about how he led the union movement and how he ran the country and ran a cabinet as prime minister and managed a Labor Party through a period of profound change change but he did have a serious drinking problem and he had a serious problem with women and a lot of people refer to this as you know womanizing but what does that really mean Um, and so I went exploring I had to understand this and so I was able to interview a number of the women that he did have uh, affairs with and talk to his colleagues at the trade union movement about what kind of drinker he was and you know some of the stories from people like Ralph Willis and Bill Kelty who worked with Hawke in the 1960s and 70s they said he might drink 20 beers in an evening Um, and so I wanted 
wanted to understand that and understand the impact it had on the family. You know, Hazel and his three children, um, they live with the roiling turmoil that Bob Hawke brought into their home as a womaniser and as a uh, you know, as a highly functioning alcoholic. Um, and so I had to explain that part of his life. And it is very shocking and very disappointing and very upsetting for a lot of people to read. But it's complex because when I interviewed Blanche Del Puget, his widow, or his children, Susan and Stephen, um, they loved their father and Blanche loved Bob, obviously, but they're well aware of his deep personal flaws. And I kind of come away from the book thinking, this is a really flawed man Uh, probably worse than a lot of people realise. But I think in many ways he's probably a better Prime Minister than we thought. I mean, he's he's regarded as as an effective Prime Minister, but, you know, on the world stage he really left his mark and was respected by people like George Bush and uh, Brian Mulroney and and John Major and Margaret Thatcher and, and of course, the economic and social reforms in Australia in the 1980s are legendary. So, you know, of course I explain the Prime Ministership a lot, but I had to fully understand and grapple with the personal side of Hawke. Did you, and obviously I appreciate you didn't get to interview Menzies because he died in, uh, when you were three, um, but um, did you get a sense that Menzies had his own demons was, was, or was that all sort of, did he not or was it all protected? I mean, we, we, don't, we don't hear about that so much. Yeah, look, I mean, we, we do know some of the aspects of, of Menzies' personal life. I mean, I was able to uncover, I guess, a few demons. It's not really the word I would use for, for Menzies, but he had flaws. Um, you know, his daughter, Heather Henderson, told me um, that uh, Dame Patty Menzies did not like her sister-in-law, Belle Green. In yes. fact, she said they hated each other. Um, and one of the things that Robert Menzies did was give his sister money um, for many, many, many years. And Heather gave me access to a series of family letters at the National Library, uh, which had been sealed. And some of those letters deal with Robert writing to his sister, giving her money and looking after her. So that caused some friction in the sort of family relationship. Relationships. I think he didn't have a particularly good relationship with his sons, um, and that is something that is troubling for a lot of people. People know he's he's very close to Heather. Uh, well, what was obviously very close to Heather, and they had a special relationship. And I think the two sons found it difficult um, to be the son of a, of a great man, you know, um, and so that was difficult. And then when I was able to interview his staff, like William Heseltine or Tony Eagleton. They said that they felt that sometimes Menzies um, was highly critical of people behind their back. Um, and so that was a bit of a sharp kind of revelation for me that you would expect that, I guess, in politics or in any workplace, any, any, any you know... In, any, anywhere, any, anybody, anywhere people gather, I guess, um, they often give, you know, two frank assessments of uh, colleagues or rivals or work workmates, um, you know, behind their back. And so, so there's a few things there, but, you know, they're nothing like Bob Hawke's demons, of course. No, no. Do you think Bob Hawke would have been the Prime Minister he was if he hadn't had those demons? Or do you think those demons kind of helped him to the greatness he achieved? Well, certainly the drinking um, was a big part of Hawke's life and it became a badge of honour to say you'd brought Bob Hawke a beer or met him in a pub. I mean, Hawke did have this magnetic personality. I mean, he really was charisma personified and we haven't had a Prime Minister who was as popular as he was. You know, and I found out that in 1984, 
uh, the Gallup poll had Hawke's approval rating at 78%. Yeah, amazing. Um, and no Prime Minister has come anywhere near that, you what know, was, since. What was Scott Morrison's before the election was about 38? Yeah, I, I think... I, th- I think Albo's is about the same. Yeah. <laughs> I think he... I think, um, We're Mo- harsh judges these days. We are. We are. <laughs> Mo- Morrison, I think, got to the mid-60s um, at, at the height of the pandemic. Uh, but Hawke was in a special league, I yeah. think, and he sustained high approval ratings for a long period of time. You know, Kevin Rudd was kind of like a flash in the pan. You know, he was pretty popular when he became Prime Minister, but then that fell away pretty pretty sharply. Yeah, um, people, you know, even on the, the very much the liberal partisan side of, side of Australian society look back on Hawke pretty fondly. I think there was very few people who deeply hated him, um, whereas, you know, someone like Kevin Rudd, he would he would generate some animosity amongst some parts of Australian society. Oh, look, or, I mean, Hawke... You know, would... Keating even, you know, he was pretty... could be pretty cruel and cutting. Um, but Hawke, everyone sort of had a, had a fondness for. And as, as you said, it's that charisma he had. He was obviously, you know, able to attract people from all walks of life. Yeah, Hawke wasn't a hater. Um, no. And he wasn't particularly tribal about politics. You know, he wanted to work across the divide. I mean, his big idea in public life was consensus politics and he had the Economic Summit in 1983, which he thought was the springboard for all the big economic reforms that brought together business and unions, state governments, community leaders. So that upset a lot of people, actually, in the Labor Party because they want to win debates for their side, whereas Hawke wanted to work with the other side of politics. So Hawke was not not that kind of a politician. Um, He was someone who did want to work across the divide. But the drinking, just to make another point about that, you know, it was a big part of his life. And Hawke said to me that when he won that, uh, when he when he entered the Guinness Book of Records as a student at Oxford for downing yeah. um, the the um, the yard of, of beer, uh, he said to me that that probably endeared him to the Australian people more than anything else he ever did. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, he was part of that sort of ochre masculine culture. But you know the strange thing is, is that he had a he had very strong appeal among women as well. Yeah, um, w- women like to meet Hawk out in public and you know um, get a hug or a kiss or something like that. And it, it sounds strange, but some of the Labor candidates um, and MPs I spoke to, like Wendy Phaeton, who was the member for Perth um, in 1983, she said Hawk being on the campaign trail was like the Pope. And what she meant by that was that people wanted to touch him. They wanted to shake his hand, pat him on the back, um, you know, get a kiss, you know, these kind of things. It's it's strange and it's hard to imagine, but he did have that that effect on people. That's it's really interesting. Well, Menzies, of course, not necessarily. Um, I don't, I've never heard of stories of people wanting to touch him, but people were very attracted to him. In you know, they loved to go and hear him speak, and um, and of course, he was extremely popular with women, and uh, time and time again would win the female vote. Over over his Labor opponents, is it? Well, he was. Is, a bo- that, is that the key to political success in Australia? The female vote. You've got well, to it's win critical. It. It's critical, yeah. I guess. But look, Menzies was was a born performer, and for generations of Australians, like my, my parents, you know, for for for, de- for almost two decades, he was the Prime Minister. Um, and it's incredible to think that for such a long period of time, he's the one they look to. Now, Menzies wasn't especially popular, 
but he was respected, he was trusted, he was safe, he was reassuring, and he had that great voice, you know, on, on radio um, and the great presence on television and in Parliament. He won the debates and, as you say, people would go and see him at town hall meetings because he had such a presence. Um, you know, he filled any room he walked into and he loomed large in politics. So he had a style about him as well. And, you know, there's something that, you know, ac- academics don't like... Um, using these kind of terms, but prime ministerial is a term and you've either got it or you don't. Now, you can acquire it and you can lose it, um, but, um, but, you know, Menzies and Hawke did have that sense of stature about them. In your, in your, I think it's in the preface of your book, you say that Hawke, and I think it could equally be said of Menzies, um, had the mysterious but always recognisable alchemy of political leadership, which I, I loved that sentence. Um, and I think it, it, I mean, you put it so pithily. There, there was something about their leadership that inspired people and, and made people aspire too as well, uh, that they yeah. did dominate debates in a room. But they were very clever at using their cabinet to... Um, real effect, weren't they? They didn't necessarily... I mean, Menzies, external affairs ministers, Spender and Casey, they were absolute drivers of significant foreign policy successes in Australia. I mean, ANZUS, Colombo Plan, you know, things that we are... You know, the um, form, formation of Australian Secret Intelligence Service. Hawke, likewise, used his ministers to great effect. He wasn't necessarily the one who had to to run, micromanage the whole agenda. No, I think, I think that's right, and that's actually one of the aspects of both the Hawke and Menzies books I really enjoyed writing and I hope people take away from them, which is it's, just, it's the art of politics, it's the art of governing, it's how you can run an administration. And so the thing about them both is that they did see themselves as a chairman of the board. They, they set the strategic direction for the government. Um, they had great skill at running a cabinet, getting the best out of their ministers. They weren't interventionist or micromanagers. Um, they had strong opinions from time to time and let their cabinets know the way they should run. Um, but they welcomed advice from public servants, you know, the frank and fearless approach to the public service. Um, you know, Menzies kept on a lot of senior public servants that had been very close to John Curtin and Ben Shifley because he respected the public service, and Hawke did the same. Um, a lot of Labor people expected Hawke to dump a whole lot of public servants in 1983, but he didn't. He kept on Sir Geoffrey Yeand as head of the Prime Minister's Department, and they had a very talented staff. They knew how to manage their party. Menzies particularly knew how to manage the relationship with the country party. And so these things, they sound easy um, and sound simple, but as we've seen with the last dozen, half a dozen prime ministers, it's much harder than it looks. Absolutely. I mean, managing your own political party. Well, for Hawke in the end, it, he was undone by his his 2IC, wasn't he? But Menzies, I mean, Menzies was one of those rare leaders who was able to choose the time of his own retirement. He was. He was. But I do think Menzies probably stayed a little bit too long. And there are a number of ministers, you know, that were getting a bit tired of of Menzies. And as you would know, um, the government under Harold Holt did change direction pretty rapidly um, in a number of directions, such as the White Australia policy and uh, policies towards um, Indigenous Australians and and other things as well. So there there were people who thought Menzies had probably stayed too long, but there's no doubt. He, he loomed large, he was dominant, he was a political colossus. With Hawke, um, you know, it's a much different time, of course, by 1991, and he had promised 
literally, to hand over the leadership to Paul Keating at a meeting that had been held at Kirribilli House in 1988 with witnesses, Sir Peter Abels um, and Bill Kelty, and he, he, re- he, relinqu- he, didn't, he didn't follow that agreement through, um, you know, and so Keating came after the leadership, and uh, he took, it took him two goes, um, but he, he got there in the end. And he thought Keating was going to lose, didn't he? He didn't think Keating could win the election. No, he thought that Keating <laughs> would lose the 1993 election, Labor's fifth election victory in a row. Um, but he was in good company because I think uh, Malcolm Fraser, John Gorton, um, that they thought Keating would lose that election as well, uh, and Gough Whitlam too. I've wanted to ask you about the both of them post-politics. So Menzies obviously... Um, lives for another 12 years after he leaves politics from 66 to 78 and famously tells B.A. Santa Maria that he's voting for the DLP now after his you know, disappointment with the Liberal Party and the leaders who succeeded him and he feels they've drifted away from, from the party he set up. Uh, Hawke Hawk was pretty angry for a bit, wasn't he? How did, how did he, he see his successes yeah, there's a chapter in the book, uh, the first chapter after Hawke's prime ministership ended, which I called Hawke in Hell, um, <laughs> because he was in hell. He hated it. Yeah. Um, he felt he'd been turfed out unnecessarily. You know, he was Labor's greatest election winner, a very popular prime minister, nearly nine years in office. Uh, no Labor leader had ever won three elections in a row, let alone four. Uh, he thought he was the only one who could lo- he could win the 1993 election. So he was very cranky and he really didn't know what he was going to do. And it took him a while to find his feet. He wrote a memoir published in 1994 that was highly critical and damaging um, for the Keating government. Um, He started drinking again. He was gambling. Uh, He made a number of emotional public outbursts. Um, So it took him a while to find his feet. I guess the interesting thing is that Robert Menzies, according to private accounts, was kind of the same way. You know, he didn't think any of his successes were any good at all. Um, and he was, you know, privately railing against what had happened to the Liberal Party and wanted to be back in the action, thinking he could do it better. And so Hawke was the same. The difference was Menzies was saying this mostly in private. Occasionally in public he said a few things. Um, but Hawke was, you know, let everyone know what he, what he really thought. Yeah. Well, there's, there's lots of theories about um, prime former prime ministers and their behaviour out of office. They, you know, there's been commentary around miserable ghosts and uh, and then the, uh, you know, Howard and Gillard seem to be standard bearers for what, what one should aspire to in terms of, you know, post-prime ministerial commentary. They, they are very respectful. I mean, obviously they're partisan. You would expect that, but... Yeah, Hawke, Hawk, I should say, Hawke did think the Labor Party had drifted a bit. Yes. Um, and it wasn't the same Labor Party that he led. He believed in that sort of consensus approach, working across the divide. Um, he wanted to see Labor Party return to the, to the centre um, ground of politics, and I think Anthony Albanese has done that to an extent. Um, but Hawke would always vote Labor. He, he would never have thought about voting any, any different way. Um, Menzies did vote DLP in 1972, and I think there's a lot of evidence that he voted that way in 1969 and 1974. Um, but, you know, the idea that the, these guys would be something like, say, Malcolm Turnbull, who refused to say whether he would vote Liberal ahead of the last election, um, they, they would never have done anything so so treacherous to their own party. Yeah, well, especially consider Menzies created the Liberal Party. You'd think he'd have a certain degree of loyalty to his own, his own creation. Um, I was wondering, Troy... Um, and and I know you've you've spoken about this before. Um, 
United States love to rank their presidents and um, it's a bit of an academic sport in Australia and it's so hard because there are the circumstances of the day and that no leader can can predict what's going to happen or really events will overtake them. But um, how do you rank Hawke and Menzies? I feel like I'm going to be struck by lightning if I if I give you this answer on this podcast. Um, look, I think I think we I think we We're can open s- to all views here, Troy. I know, I know. <laughs> I think we can say that Hawke and Menzies are the best of their two parties. Mm. There's no doubt about that. But I do think that Hawke is a better prime minister than Menzies, and I, I argue that um, simply because I think in terms of economic and social policy, uh, and environmental policy, and international policy, we are still living. Um, with the legacy that Hawke had, you know, some 30, 40 years on. Um, the Menzies government, I think, was out of time pretty quickly. We just talked about how Harold Holt had changed direction pretty, pretty fast. So Menzies is a giant of Australian politics, very, very significant. I'm not, I'm not critical of him, but I just think in terms of changing the country and leaving your mark on it, um, Hawke did that more so than Menzies. Now, this is, of course, is a debatable point. Menzies won more elections than Hawke. Uh, Hawke's more popular in terms of the opinion polls. So look, um, you know, people might have different views on that, but I, I do think the Hawke legacy has lasted longer and influenced his successes more than the Menzies government did. Well, it's, I mean, that's, yeah, it is debatable because of course we're um, 66 years now since Menzies retired and we're only now going to test me on my maths. How many years since Hawke retired? Well, Hawke left in 1991. Right. So, okay. yeah. so, so we're just over years. 30 years. 30, yeah. yeah, 31 years. So, look, you know, Hawke's Hawk's legacy is more contemporary than Menzies. But uh, if you think of the things the Menzies government did, I mean, they, the creation of the Reserve Bank of Australia, as I said, the um, signing of the ANZUS Security Alliance with the United States, Commonwealth scholarships that led to, you know, a tripling of university-educated students in Australia, the immigration program that brought in 2 million new Australians. And, you know, this is at a time when there are only 7 million Australians, so we are talking huge numbers. Uh, A commitment to full employment, um, home ownership, which went from about, um, you know, 49% to 70% during the Menzies era. I mean, these things set... Australia up. A lot of the issues that Menzies grappled with, of course, are, are no longer relevant. You know, time has moved on. And of course, as you say, that through the Hawke-Keating reforms, the way Australia manages its economy, much more liberal economy that, you know, we, we, don't, we don't adopt or, or think that what the Menzies government did during those times, during his era, would be necessarily the right thing now. But they were of their era too. I mean, economics is quite fashionable, isn't it? <laughs> We've seen comes and goes. Um, so I think you know it's it's debatable, isn't it? Because we don't live and breathe a lot of the things that that Menzies Menzies did, and and we just take them for granted. I mean, the National Library of Australia, the institutions that are in Canberra, the, the basically the existence of Canberra was down to Menzies thinking we can't have a sort of dusty country town as our nation's capital. We need a decent city. I mean, you may say there are too many roundabouts. <laughs> public servants but yeah it is it is debatable troy the the circumstances that each of Hawke and menzies faced were partly um a gift to their political success so menzies of course had the labor split cold war communism 
a lot of concern in Australia about Labor's links to, to the Communist Party and communist elements. That was just the gift that kept on giving for him. And, you know, whether he would have won without it or not, I mean, ar- arguments are very strong that he wouldn't have won the elections he did without the Labor split. For Hawke, he had the Joe for PM push and, and those types of um, you know, problems on the, the conservative side of politics. How much did those events define their successes or, or were they just, you know, dumb luck? <laughs> well, you've got to be lucky in politics to you be do. really successful. You do. And fortune, I, I know that bitterly. <laughs> yes, well, fortune has to run your way and okay. you need to choose your timing and, and get those things right. Um but I do think that, you know, Hawke, for example, you know, in the 1990 election, um, Andrew Peacock led the Liberal Party to, to win more than 50% of the vote, um, but not 50% of the seats um, on a two-party basis. Um, and, of course, the same thing happened with Robert Menzies, with, with um, Doc Everett in 1954 and Arthur Corwell in 1961. So, you know... Uh, Evett, Corwell and Peacock came very, very close uh, to being Prime Minister and becoming government. Um, and I interviewed Andrew Peacock for the Hawke book and he, he was not bitter about that at all. You know, I pushed him about that about that point. He said, that's the system and, and I accepted it, as, as, he, as, did, as did Evett and Corwell. So, um, yeah, the Labor split certainly did help the Menzies um, government with those DLP preferences um, at a, in a number of seats and at a number of elections. Um, and there's no doubt that the... Um, the Joe for PM push in 1987, where the coalition formally split, um, did help Hawke get over the line in 1987. I don't know that it's the decisive factor, um, but it did it did certainly help. Um, and I remember interviewing Bob Hawke's uh, political advisor, Bob Sorby, before he died, and I said, why did you want to go to an early election in 1987? He said, well, you're not going to get a better circumstance than a mad Queenslander wanting to be Prime Minister. So, <laughs> so they went early. Um, so, yeah, look, I mean, the good thing about Hawke and Menzies is they seized opportunities yeah. um, and they recognise. That's the art of politics, right? You've got to recognise um, the timing and how you frame elections and frame debates and, um, you know, how you, how you criticise your opponents and, and set up a sharp contrast and they were both, I think, very successful at doing that. Yeah, I mean, Menzies' um, electoral wins time and time again were down to using all the sort of triggers of parliament he could you know he did double dissolutions to his advantage calling early elections when labor was weak or there was some political issue he could take advantage of I mean that they that 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 was of course you know completely within the rules but he was taking they both were taking advantage weren't they of of circumstances as they presented themselves and using incredible political judgment to do that yeah absolutely I mean, there were like eight elections in in sixteen years uh, in the Menzies yeah, it's period. Exhausting, to I know. Think of. So, he, oh. so they often went to an early <laughs> early election to capitalise on you know political circumstances. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you've got to understand um, how to how to run election campaigns. You've got to win election campaigns. Obviously, you've got to understand your opponents, exploit their weaknesses, set up the sharp contrast between yourself and the other party. And so they were they were successful in being able to do that. But when they they both lost referenda. They supported a side of a referendum that, that wasn't successful. That didn't seem to take any skin off them, or not, not enough to cause them to lose an election, did it? No, well, I think, I think the loss of the 1951 referendum in an attempt to ban the Communist Party was pretty significant for the Menzies government. Menzies had, you know, banked a lot on that referendum and lost it narrowly, and so that was a serious blow to his government. Whereas with Hawke... 
you know, Hawke put six referendums in together in 1984 and 1988, so four in 88, two in 84. But Hawke wasn't all that really interested in the referendums. Um, he basically did it because his, his Attorney General, Lionel Bowen, wanted these referendums. And there was a bit of a push within the Labor Party for kind of, you know, law reform, as they would call it then. But Hawke wasn't particularly committed to it. They're sort of pretty complex and convoluted, things like, you know, the interchange of powers or free and fair elections or rights and freedoms. I mean, they're pretty obscure. And before this podcast, I went and looked at the actual questions that people had to, you know, say yes or no going into a ballot box. And, and you know, my eyes were glazing over um, as, <laughs> I'm, you're a as, political junkie, as so. I'm reading them. So, so I don't think yeah. they were really particularly committed to them, but... Um, yes, those referendums hitting the fence um, really uh, didn't bother Hawke all that much and didn't have any really impact on his government. So, Troy, to finish off the podcast today, um, we've just had a federal election, we've just had a change of government, we've just celebrated the 80th anniversary of Menzies Forgotten People broadcast too on the weekend. Uh, so lots of lots of big changes and anniversaries. What are the lessons that Menzies can leave for the Libs at this critical point who are obviously dealing with a pretty existentially challenging moment, although, you know, they, they come and go, so I wouldn't overblow that. And what are the lessons for the Albanese Labor government from a successful Bob Hawke? Well, look, I've written a little bit about what's happened at the 2022 election. I, I do think the Liberal Party is in, is in a serious crisis now. That goes to its belief goes towards leadership, goes towards constituency. I mean, the loss of these once safe Liberal seats in Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane and Adelaide to independents, Labor or Greens is a serious problem. Um, and some of these seats have been held by the Liberal Party since 1949. Well, one of them was Robert Menzies' seat. Indeed, Rob- yeah. Robert Menzies' seat. Um, and, you know, this is, a, this is a tragedy for the Liberal Party and I do think there is now a contested debate going on about what does the Liberal Party do. I don't think the Liberal Party needs to move to the left. I think the Liberal Party needs to move back towards the centre. Um, that's where elections are run and won in Australia. I think Robert Menzies was very successful in articulating what he called a statement of faith you know, what does the party stand for? Who does it represent? What does it want to achieve? You know, he talked about the revival of liberalism. Um, Of course, Robert Menzies led a government that was in part conservative, and he was often conservative, um, but he deliberately rejected the name conservative when he wanted to name the Liberal Party, and he said in those famous words he wanted it to be progressive and forward-looking and not reactionary. Um, So, uh, I don't think Robert Menzies was any way kind of, you know, a left-wing sort of liberal leader, um, but he did understand the centre ground of politics, you know, the community up. And a lot of the, a lot of the teals, um, I think these are professional women um, that Robert Menzies would have appealed to, community-minded, yeah. um, interested in, in what's happening locally, uh, educated, um, middle and upper class. These were the backbone of the Liberal Party, and so that is a big problem as to how they can get those people back. Um, I think with Hawke, like Menzies, it, it's the art of politics. 
It is running a government effectively, um, being a good chairman of the board, getting the best out of your ministers, setting a good strategic direction for government, um, working effectively with the public service, appointing staff that, that you're prepared to be told that you are wrong uh, from time to time and deal with difficult advice. So the art of governing is a lesson for all political parties that they can learn from Hawke and Menzies. Um, but both of them had a very clear idea about what their party stood for, who they represented and what they wanted to achieve. And I think the Labor Party too has some crises on their own on their own side, which is, you know, a low primary vote of 33%. Labor lost seats at this election as well. Um, so they need to have a look at themselves too and, and um, see whether they are continue to be as politically viable um, going into the future as well. Fascinating time. Thank you so much, Troy, for joining me on the Afternoon Light podcast today. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've loved loved talking Hawke and Menzies, two, two great political heroes in Australia. So thank you. Thanks very much, Georgina. The Afternoon Light podcast is brought to you by the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. You can find more about the Institute and our podcast at robertmenziesinstitute.org.au. We're also on Twitter, on Facebook and LinkedIn. We look forward to you joining our show next week. Thank you.